from Share Cancer Support, this is Our MBC Life, a podcast dedicated to exploring life with metastatic breast cancer from the perspective of us, the people living with this disease, and the experts who partner with us to help make our lives better. I'm Lisa Laudico. So glad you're here, since no one should face MBC alone. Our NBC Life podcast is for the NBC community, developed by people living with NBC in an effort to amplify marginalized voices, share stories, and experiences. For our first podcast, there is no more relevant topic than looking at the pervasive racial disparities in healthcare for those with NBC and learning more about the advocacy from those striving to make a difference. I do think it's important to pause here for a moment and acknowledge the work Black women have been doing for years to educate others on the many impacts of structural and systemic racism. I'm a white woman living with NBC, and as a team, we did not want to be yet another group asking for our Black sisters with NBC to carry the burden of educating us. We've been doing our homework here and fully know we have many miles to go. Our team strives to be inclusive and diverse Our primary goal with this podcast is to be able to speak to and represent people with NBC from all backgrounds. So today, we are very excited to have these incredible women to speak to all of us on how we can take action, not only to be allies, but also to become accomplices in the work for real and sustained racial justice in NBC healthcare. For additional context, it's important to provide some statistical data to grasp the gravity of the state of health care outcomes for women and men of color living with MBC. According to the National Cancer Institute, black women are over 40% more likely to die of breast cancer than non-Hispanic white women. Black women are diagnosed younger with more advanced disease. Black women under 35 are diagnosed at twice the rate and die at three times the rate of white women. The National Cancer Institute found that breast cancer rates stabilized between 2002 and 2011 in non-Hispanic white women, but rates continue to increase among black women. Further, black women with breast cancer are less likely than white women to survive five years after diagnosis. The rates for triple negative breast cancers in black women are 1.9 times higher than the non-Hispanic white rate. 2.3 times higher than the Hispanic rate, and 2.6 times higher than the non-Hispanic Asian Pacific Islander rate. Even though black women have a lower risk of cancer overall as compared to white women, they still have higher death rates. Black women are often diagnosed at later stages of breast cancer, and far too often, their advocacy for themselves and their health are dismissed by some healthcare providers, leading to later diagnoses. Currently, only 4% of participants in human gene studies include individuals who identify as black. So this important line of research for MBC continues to be blind to a critical group of patients. You can find links to these statistics and studies mentioned in the episode notes of our webpage. But today, we don't want to just focus on stats. We also want to hear from the inspirational people who are working hard to change these statistics. And most importantly, the day-to-day experiences and stories of women and men of color living with NBC. 
This is a discussion about the impact of racial disparities on real people and how they are advocating for change. Our first guest is Jersey Baker, also known as Angela Baker. She likes both. And she's an NBC advocate who truly embodies her motto of live life now. She is the founder of the Angel in Disguise Foundation and has still been out driving breast cancer patients who rely on her to their treatments even during this pandemic. The foundation she started in 2015 not only provides transportation services in the greater Charlotte area, but also provides emotional and moral support during doctor's appointments and surgery, preparing meals, and helping with light errands, medicine pickup, and monthly support groups. On top of all of that, Jersey is also the African-American ambassador for the Metastatic Breast Cancer Project of the Count Me In Initiative to the runway three times in the New York Fashion Week Anna Ona Intimates Cancerland NBC Fashion Show. But that's not all. In addition to all of this, Jersey used her voice last year to ask the important question, why? Why is there still not enough representation of Black women living with NBC at the table when racial disparities in healthcare are being discussed? This led Jersey and the co-founders of the GRASP initiative, Julia Moz and Christine Hodgson, to create the Hashtag Inclusion Pledge. Jersey, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. So to start, I thought we would talk about your own breast cancer story so far. So when you were first diagnosed and how you're doing today. I was first diagnosed in 2003 with DCIS. And I took tamoxifen for five years, and I was told I was 99.5% that the cancer would not return and I could go on and live my life. Fast forward to 2010, I had a local reoccurrence. And in 2011, I became metastatic. At that time, I never heard the word. I didn't know how to say the word. I didn't know how to spell the word. Unfortunately, today I can say it backwards. I can probably spell it backwards. And last year, I developed liver meds, and that's where I am today on my journey. In the process of being an early stager, and now you have metastatic breast cancer, how have healthcare disparities, if they have, if you feel they have, how have they impacted your own path to diagnosis, the treatment choices you were given, and how you're being treated today? I feel that As a Black woman, I feel like that my treatment plan was good because I ask a lot of questions. I go to a lot of conferences. I listen. I research. I'm my own very own advocate. So I ask lots of questions. So when I got the liver match, you know, I got a second opinion. And I also asked about other treatment options. I asked about clinical trials because I wanted to make sure I was getting the best treatment for my situation. And what that helps me do is the people I drive, I call them VDAs, and that helps me to help them know what questions to ask their doctor. Or I'll say, make sure you ask them this, or I'll ask them something that'll make them say, okay, I'll check. So mm. I feel like I've been given great treatment. However, I know that that's not always the case. Right, right. And so your pro tips that you give your VEDAs when you're helping them with their own treatment is to always ask questions, but maybe have a list of questions that they want to ask prior to, are you prior to the actual sitting down in front of their doctor? Yes. 
And whenever, like I said, when we're going to their appointment, I'll ask them questions and I'll say, well, you should ask this doctor this or, you know, depending on what kind of appointment we're going to, it could be chemo or radiation. And I'll say, oh, no, don't ask this to this doctor. Ask this to the plastic surgeon or right on. And then after their visit, because of COVID and I can no longer go in the hospital with them or the doctor's office. Because I do go in the doctor's office with them and hold their hand or whatever, or, or interject and ask the doctor's questions. And they, they give me weird looks sometimes, like, who are you? And I'm like, I'm an advocate. And I don't want them to ever say, well, the doctor said, I'm doing this because the doctor said. And I say, no, you have to do it because of what you say or your body says. Of course, we don't ever discount the doctors, but we question anything that we have doubt with. Sure, sure. And it's really part of every doctor's job to make sure that their patients clearly understand the treatments that are being suggested and offered. And and all too often, I know I find that myself as a patient too, and I'm lucky that I have a great rapport with my oncologist, but that doesn't mean that I don't question all the time. And I think sometimes it's intimidating when we're dealing with a lot of information that we don't know, especially when we're first diagnosed, right? Right. And we don't know what resources are available or where to turn. And everybody's not always sharing those resources. Mm -hmm. Everybody doesn't have access to these smart devices or computers. So, I mean, as an advocate, we have to step in to help. Just the other day, I was driving home a Vidas and she loves to stop at the little corner store. And I was like, you know what? When you get back in the car, we're going to fill out this grant application right here on my phone. And just the other day, she called me and she's like, Miss Angela, girl, you are all right. Because, you know, she's getting help. That's yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So, so you were able to access her to funding and to some grants that are available. Yeah, that's yeah, wonderful. So everything I fill out, you know, I say, is it okay for you to give me this information? Because I'm either doing it on my phone or I take it home to fax. And it's a trust issue. Sometimes these VDAs, my first time with them, of course, they've never met me. But after a few rides or whatever, or even after one, they have a trust factor mm-hmm. because they see someone, even though I'm younger than some of them, some of them I'm older than, but they see someone that looks like them and they can identify and they trust me. They're like, okay, she's not out here to just steal my information or blah, blah, blah. She's mm-hmm. really here to help me with resources. Well, and I think you highlight something that's really an important piece of what we're talking about, that representation matters, that it's so important for someone who's newly diagnosed to be able to see people that have gone through it or are going through it that look like them, that have had a similar life experience. And I think that's often or has been often forgotten. So I think let's talk a little bit about this amazing thing that you do through your Angel in Disguise Foundation. So tell us a little bit more. And and in the middle of the pandemic, you're still going strong. And so I I just give us a a little bit of an understanding of what made you decide to start this foundation and what it looks like today while you're dealing with this pandemic that's not going away anytime soon. Right. In 2014, when I decided to no longer work, I knew that I couldn't just sit home and do nothing. And then, of course, you know, with everyone else working, people start calling you to do all kinds of things when they know you're home. Can you go to my house and wait for for the refrigerator man or, or this package? Or can you get my kids from school? Or 
I need a ride here, there, and everywhere. And so one of my good friends, who I call my sissy, she was like, you should start an errands business. And I was like, okay. And then I went home and I thought about it for a minute. And it started as a for-profit. And I thought of the name, which was, at the time, it was Angel in Disguise Events. And it was like a concierge transportation service. But the one day, and I would still hand out cards, but the one day I got a call from Susan G. Coleman and they were like, you know, you left your cards here. We have someone, her children are at work. She has two doctor's appointments. And they were like, but she doesn't have the money to pay you. And I said that that was okay. And so I went and picked her up and literally five hours later, two doctor's appointments later, a full day together, you know, afterwards I was like, hmm. I didn't know anything about starting a nonprofit or really, and it was an extensive research, but I was like, this is what I'm supposed to do. And I figured out how you start one and I just moved. I am not a huge planner. I kind of get an ideal and I just jumped in. That's awesome. And how are you finding that things have changed for you during the pandemic now that you're not allowed to go into their doctor's appointments with them and... It's just, it's a little bit more fraught when you're dealing with the great unknown and unseen disease. Well, it's not unknown, it's unseen. Right. So once the pandemic started, it was right when I did another press release because the pandemic was going on and everybody was staying in their house. But as we all know, cancer doesn't stop. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, it doesn't. And so I kept driving patients, even though people like Jersey, you know, you can't do that. What about you and your immune system? I'm like, I wear my mask and I have faith in God. And I kept going. And once that press release went out and I was also featured on the news in my local city, I was already getting referrals from one hospital organization. But now I started getting them from another one because organization transportation companies that were offering complimentary services, they had stopped when the shutdowns, they stopped, but cancer doesn't stop. You know, who wants to have to rely on getting on public transportation or, you know, stressing out about how they're going to get to their treatment, their surgery, their radiation, their follow-up appointments when they have cancer. Like that's the last thing they should worry about, which is why my, one of my tags is live life now and making the impossible possible because I need you to forget about how you're going to get there and all that stuff and know that this organization's got me and I don't need to worry about that part of it. I mean, if we can move one small part off of it, I mean, that changes the needle. Right. I agree. Do you have anyone else that's helping you with all of these, this transportation and it's really support services directly to breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer patients? I'm kind of selfish with my Vita, so I feel like I want to drive with myself. One year, I used to pick up people's kids from school, and don't ask me how I did this. I went to five schools with 11 kids. Wow. So with my Vitas, I feel like I can take them all. However, I do have a team, and when I need their help, they step right in, whether it's 3 o'clock in the morning, 4 o'clock, because you know when you're having surgery, you have to be there at old dark 30. So, yeah. you know, we we take people not just to treatment, but to surgery, to follow-up appointments, to get glasses, to get medicine, to go light errands and get food. If they have an appointment with the dentist, all of those things while they're cancer patients. Because all of those things feed on each other. Oh, well, for sure. And it's like you're providing 
holistic support to these patients, these people who are dealing with their breast cancer. What do you and they're not and, and I'm sorry, they're not just breast cancer patients, they're other cancer patients too, okay. but primarily breast cancer patients. In April, we had a Caucasian lady and she was 91 years old. Mm-hmm. And her spirits, every time I would pick her up, I would just smile because she reminded me a lot of myself. And she still drove and everything, but she wouldn't drive herself to treatment and she doesn't drive far. But you never know who needs your services because like I said, cancer doesn't, it doesn't discriminate. And you know that as well as I do. Yeah, that's so true. What are your hopes for the Angel in Disguise Foundation and how you're working on it today? Obviously today in the time of pandemic, it's a different situation a little bit. You're absolutely filling in the void left by other organizations that don't think the same way you do. What are you hoping for the future for the foundation? That I have a branch or a satellite in New Jersey because that's where I'm from. And that it just moves to different parts of the United States and open up different sites. Different satellites. How can people help? We're going to have the link to your website in our episode notes. But how would you like people to help you move towards this goal? Resources, if they know people that can help start it in satellite cities, of course, funding, partnerships, sponsors, and really like giving someone like me a seat at the table. Like I don't have a huge nonprofit organization with money coming out of the wazoo or I'm not helping 2000 people, but the people I'm helping, I'm making a huge impact and driving lots of miles and spending lots of waiting time hours and For someone to really see that and see that as a value, because it really truly is a value. I hope that if I ever needed someone, that someone would step in and I could found an organization that would drive me around. Sure, sure. Well, you're doing so much and it's really, it is such an incredibly tough time right now. We have the pandemic that's not abating. We have the long overdue reckoning for racial justice in America. We have economic downturn. It's tough out there. And then, of course, we all just keep on having this cancer thing going on in our lives and treatment still doesn't stop. You're right. Cancer doesn't discriminate. Cancer doesn't care that there's a pandemic going on. So how are you taking care of yourself? What are you doing to maintain balance and sound mental health? (laughs) Because we'd love to hear it. Everyone would love to hear any tips you have. Is to travel. So I'm in deep depression because I am not traveling. Um, I went to the doctor's office yesterday and they said something like, you know, not to get on any planes, right? And I was like, "Uh, no, because I'm looking for the first Caribbean island that I can go to. And I was like, I can't get on a plane. So traveling is my big thing. Reading, Angel in Disguise started when we were all stay at home, I started a morning 7.30 to 8 o'clock, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday yoga sessions. And it's led by one of my breasties, Valencia Robinson. And I post about it sometime, but, you know, we have our little group and, and we're still going with it. And she just told me the other day, I inspired her to go back and become a yoga teacher. And, you know, it's really great because it's helping me and anyone can join it. We do Zoom 7 to 8.30. And just keeping busy and being an advocate, like with all the things that are going on with the world, with racial injustices, 
it makes me know that even though I got some backlash, you know, I've stood up three times with my voice saying, hey, I don't see anybody that looks like me. And, you know, the last time I got some love, but I got backlash. But it makes me smile because I stood up to say as a black woman, I don't see anyone that looks like me, not a woman of color, because a woman of color is an Indian, an Asian, a blah, blah, blah. I didn't see anyone that looked like a black woman. And I always stand for the underdogs. You know, I stand, I have a Caucasian friend. I'm always standing for her as a breastfeed. But of course, I'm going to always stand for me because I'm an only child, but I have, my mom has 10 siblings, which means I have a lot of cousins, first, second, third cousins. And I need them to look at billboards, look at TV, look at social media and pay attention and say, oh, that's someone that looks like me. So I need to pay attention because it has something to do with me. But if they don't see anyone that looks like them, they're going to keep playing or not pay attention. And that's why I use my voice. It's so big, even though I'm so little, my voice is so big. And, <laughs> and I'll never, now my, one of my hashtags is Jersey Speaks because I'm going to keep speaking. I'm going to keep having the uncomfortable conversations. I'm going to continue to try to move the needle. Because I spoke, Tiger Lily wrote a pledge. Well, it started with Christine and Julia. Mm-hmm. And Tiger Lily rewrote it and launched it and are having people, you know, sign it. But I can smile and say I am the legacy behind that pledge. Mm-hmm. Because if I didn't have such a big mouth, then I, I mean, maybe they would have started one. But I feel like I know that I'm the one that I'm the reason that that was a push. And so tonight I'm on a Twitter chat about the pledge. And that's wonderful. Nobody else in my family has breast cancer or has had it. And I wanted to stay that way. I know I can't stop it, but I want to see my cousins, little ones and the ones that are my age or a little younger to pay attention and get checked and check your breast and all of those things. So that's why it's really important to me. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, it says a lot about how you're coping in today's moment, but also today's moment hasn't just been today. The racial injustice in healthcare has been going on for way, way, way too long. And it feels like a number of factors have led to everyone's now paying attention, it seems. But yeah, and that's the sad part about it. Like we've been standing on our heads and Holding your breath and yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Like, what change? And it's, yeah. And now everyone's like making a change and it's great. I love it. But, you know, you shouldn't have to do all of this just to be heard. Right, right. Well, it shouldn't have had to take this to finally be having these really important and challenging and I think you said uncomfortable conversations. Like, bring it on. And (laughs) one thing that we hope with this podcast, our NBC life is that this is a, a place for all kinds of different conversations that we're really looking at how we, as people living with metastatic breast cancer, how we see things, right. And making sure that all voices have a place here and a forum for their voices to be heard. So I know you and I've had a number of discussions about this podcast and we're so happy that you're going to be, you're part of it and that you're joining certainly here as our first interviewee and in our inaugural podcast, but also 
as part of our team. So that's why I love that you're using your voice. I love your hashtag Jersey Speaks, hashtag Jersey Speaks. That's awesome. And representation really does matter because if you don't see people who look like you, who have the same experience as you, or can understand exactly your situation, it's hard to translate messages or information or instructions or things that you need to remember as a metastatic breast cancer patient. So that's super important. So your Twitter discussion tonight should be interesting. Can you tell us a little bit about that and where people can find it? It's going to be on the Tiger Lily platform, Mm -hmm. a Twitter chat surrounding the inclusion pledge. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one that's a big tweeter, but I will be on there at o'clock tonight. So, well, I'm glad you're participating in that. That's fantastic. So, I wanted to also ask you. We've talked a lot about some of the things we're doing here on the podcast and how it's really about. We want to amplify everyone's voice in the metastatic breast cancer community because this is bias for us, and so. And everyone's voice is important because everyone is different. Even everyone's breast cancer is different. Breast cancer acts differently in Caucasians as it does in Black women, as it does in Asians, Indians, Hispanics. So all of our concerns are different. And if we don't talk about them, then no one's going to even know that they exist or that there's an issue. I can't tell all my Black metastatic breast cancer friends, oh, just go on this app and blah, 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 blah. And they may still have a flip phone or no cell phone or not know what an app is. We have to meet these people where they are in their community. Exactly. And I think that you really raise such an important point that even in our whatever our identifiers are, at the bottom line, metastatic breast cancer is incredibly complex with many, many different oncotypes and mutations and different ways to approach that new research coming out all the time. It is like drinking from a fire hose, right? Right, Um, right. And at the same time, us individual patients, individuals come at the disease and come at our own experience with living with metastatic breast cancer with all the rest of our things going on in our world. Some of us are working parents. Some of us are really struggling with some of our treatments that are creating side effects that are not allowing us to work. There's a lot of different issues out there that are quite individual. And so, yes, we want to make sure everyone has a chance to say what's going on in, in their lives and give them a platform for that. But the other thing is, you know, we have this fun thing where it could be the good, bad, and the ugly of life with metastatic breast cancer. But we have this thing where we want to ask every guest And every listener, whoever wants to contribute a voice memo, they're just got to share a moment. So you're our first. So can you give us, you know, anything that you're excited about, looking forward to, worried about, mad about, frustrated with, you know, it's the full gamut. All emotions can come to this table. So it's just got to share. So what's your just got to share for today? I'm excited. I'm going to see my son tomorrow. I haven't seen him since March. Just got to share. I'm excited that Angel in Disguise keeps growing and I'm allowed to use my voice on different platforms. I'm mad that 40% of African-Americans, Black people are dying at higher rates. And, you know, I think some people don't even realize that, like the early stages. I feel like that's kept from them unless they research it or talk to someone And I'm just really happy that I'm making an impact. And during COVID, I am still 
able to assist people with complimentary transportation. As I always say, of course, Angel in Disguise needs more funding, but we are still going to plug and help people funding or no funding because my faith in my organization is much greater than the fear of it failing. Well, I'm glad to hear that, but I do hope that people will check out your website in our episode notes and figure out ways to support you. So thank you for everything that you've been doing and continue to do. And we're thrilled that you're part of our team. And I'm so excited. I know it'll be wonderful. And we can talk more about in future episodes, we'll be introducing your segment, which we're really excited about. And we'll talk more about that. But I think that you're doing amazing things, Jersey, and we're really grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, I jumped into something with, I just jumped in, right? <laughs> I love that. You just keep on doing it. It's making the world a better place. That's for sure. That's what so, helps me try just to keep on keeping on. So I thank you so much for this opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Since our interview, Jersey has experienced additional progression in her liver but has since changed treatments and is doing well. We look forward to having her back with us on the podcast at the end of August. We will be back with our interview with Mama Carmo, the founder of the Tiger Lily Foundation, just after this. Hi, I'm Anne, a member of the podcast team and a SHARE volunteer, and I have MBC. If you're looking for other metastatic women to talk with and share experiences, join SHARE's online metastatic breast cancer community at Health Unlocked a space where you can feel safe, supported, and empowered to tell your story and discuss things important to you. Go to healthunlocked.com and join the conversation. All right. Welcome back to our NBC Life. I want to welcome a legendary advocate, Mema Carmo, an early-stage breast cancer survivor and founder of the Tiger Lily Foundation. Fun fact of many fun facts. She founded the Tiger Lily Foundation 14 years ago while she was still in active treatment for her early stage breast cancer. Its mission is to educate, empower, support, and advocate for young women ages 15 to 45 before, during, and after breast cancer. Mema and her foundation are dedicated to ending disparities of age, stage, and color. She started the Quarterly Bliss magazine in 2015. She's a sought-after public speaker who has been on Oprah not once, but twice, and who has also written five books, two of them, in the past six months alone. She's definitely one of the uber-productive people who continue to do remarkable things during this pandemic time. She wrote her memoir, Fearless, Awakening to My Life's Purpose Through Breast Cancer in 2012. And her most recent book, Unicorn Boss, Running Towards Bliss and Being Tapped the F in, came out (laughs) just in April of 2020. And all of her books can be purchased wherever books are sold, of course, and links can be found on her personal website, mama.com. That's M-A-I-M-A-H dot com. Most recently, the Tiger Lily Foundation, in keeping with its core mission to address inequities for people of color, has become a leading organization with other partners, driving the hashtag inclusion pledge to promote global measurable action to improve healthcare equity and access for women of color living with breast cancer. Indeed, the pledge reminds us all that being black should not negate your right to live. Welcome, Mema. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thanks for having me. Thanks for that beautiful introduction. I feel, I'm like, who is she talking about? <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank you for having me. I'm honored, truly. Well, it's our inaugural podcast and we're thrilled you're here. So to kick us off, I thought we would talk about the hashtag inclusion pledge. So earlier in this podcast, I had the opportunity to speak with Jersey Baker on how the hashtag inclusion pledge was born out of her experience at a breast cancer conference where healthcare disparities for black women and men and other people of color were being discussed by a panel with no black representation at all. So tell us, Mema, how you came to be involved with the creation and promotion of the hashtag inclusion pledge. And we can talk about how many people have signed on and how many organizations are engaged and, and so on. So I'd love to hear how it all started for you. Thanks for asking. So I'm the kind of person when I see something happening that's not in any kind of way an injustice or inequity, I want to fix the problem. I think it's important to talk about things, but being about it and doing about it, it's what's really, really meaningful to me in measuring the impact. And so to Jersey was at a conference and there were women who were not black talking about health inequities and disparities. And Jersey said, there's nobody on the panel who looks like me. And they said, you know, you're right, come on up. And she went up there and shared her voice. And when I heard that, I thought it was so powerful. And in that act of two white women realizing how to use their privilege for power, and realizing that you have to have a Black woman at the table when you're discussing Black women. And for Jersey, proud of her for having the balls to get up there and say, hello, what about me? And so that was so powerful to me that she did that. And they said, you know, you're right. And it takes all of us to come together to make change. And so she put her hand up. She took the stand at the table and took her seat at the table. And they sat and talked together. And that to me was, it gave me chills. Later on that next year, we had a conference within Tiger Lily. We had a Listen Up NBC, our first summit, to hear women of color and their opinions and hear their challenges and, and fears and learn how to, how to use those, how to learn what those were and to build measurable impact to end disparities. And at the conference, it was a woman, listening summit for a Black woman. And some friends of mine, of course, of every color were invited and peers and advocates and partners. And something similar happened where there were there were black women in the room and there was a white woman, amazing friend of mine, advocate who's metastatic. It just showed me the different nuances of conversations we have to have and how we have to listen more. And so we made a promise to have the inclusion pledge conversation at our SABCS event in December. I wanted people to see the power people had to bring a table together that sat women who were early stagers, metastatic patients, Black women and other cultures and talk about the importance of inclusion and using privilege for power. And so we launched the Inclusion Pledge at San Antonio Breast in December. Mm-hmm. And it took off. It was really, it, people just felt they connected with it, right? And so, of course, COVID happened and we took some time to pause and really assess how to make the pledge measurable and actionable. People had made the promise and made the pledge, taken the pledge rather, but nothing had happened since December. And so... Mm-hmm. Watching people go through COVID, watching all these conversations happen on video and audio and the same conversations, same shit, different day. I'm like, this is not working for me. Right. I want to see action. And that's what I right. believe in. So, so I literally just, my team and I sat down and I said, we're going to launch the pledge in a big way. We're going to contact all our friends and partners and peers and say, here's a pledge. We're taking the pledge. And then literally that same week is when everything happened with George Floyd. Yeah. And we got chills because as a person of color, you can't really see our pain. Our people, you don't see anyone's pain, 
But when you see somebody, you know, with a foot on their neck, a knee on their neck, and it really, for us, for me, showed how Black people have a foot on their neck all the time. And that visual of what happened to this man represented in so many ways that foot on the neck that we don't see because you don't see me having a foot on my neck, but as a patient of color, that is triple negative. And as a patient of color who her population has the highest rate of recurrence with meds with NBC and have the, has a 40% higher death rate, that foot's on your neck all the time. And so that urgency that we were talking about in San Antonio, the one that Julia and that woman had that conversation at intensity and the intensity of what happened with Christine and Julia and Jersey at the previous conference right. kind of all culminated in this moment of the entire world seeing that foot on the neck of Black people everywhere and how racism affects all part of our healthcare system. And so we launched the inclusion pledge because if we're not included, we're not counted, we're not studied, we're not understood. Right. And we'll have numbers that will be continue to rise with right. Black breast cancer. The pledge today is, is incredible. We have more than... 30 global partners. Amazing. Um, it's amazing. San Antonio Breast signed on to the pledge last week. That's really um, great. Yeah. We're working on getting ASCO to sign on soon. We have mm. companies signing the pledge. We now have close to 10,000 signatures in less than two and a half weeks. Incredible. It's now growing globally. We have support from pharma, from businesses, from local mm-hmm. grassroots organizations, from IT tech companies, we're reaching companies all over the world. So this is a thing really about if each person owned their power in the world, each human being took one act to include someone else that didn't look like them as it pertains to healthcare, imagine how different their outcomes would be across the spectrum. And so we're asking people per sector, whether you're in policy, advocacy, whether you're a one-person advocacy organization, whether you're, you know, in pharma, Pfizer, Merck, Myriad, Daichi, like Amgen, whoever you are, a healthcare provider, nurse navigator, OBGYN, a teacher, how do you take the pledge and make that promise to change outcomes for people of color? And people are taking the pledge every day and it's growing. That's just staggering those numbers. And I'm so glad to hear it. I didn't realize that 10,000 individuals worldwide, because you're talking about that individual action when they're at a conference themselves, or they've been invited to be on a panel at their hospital, at their cancer center, they have to ask the question they should, hey, there's, there's room at this table and I'm not seeing black women or men or other people of color, let's increase the chairs at the table. Let's pull those chairs up. Or, or, give, or give your seat up. Or give you your know, seat like, up. Actually, yeah, yeah, I wanted to just say, <laughs> just let your seat go to someone else and go to someone who can represent the community better. And tell me more, though, about the accountability aspect. I mean, that's a challenge in any initiative like this. So with your large organizations, the foundations, the nonprofits, and maybe even the pharma companies, how do they put together their own list of actionable items that they- No, I just said to them, I said, here's what we have. Here's what you're going to be doing. You're going to be doing this. (laughs) Here's what you're doing. Tell us more about that. I don't like to play around. I'm like, listen, we've been talking about this for years and years and years. I go to San Antonio. I go to ASCO. The same freaking conversation about diversity, inclusion, and people of color are not in clinical trials and we can't find them. We don't know where they are. You don't know where we are, really? Like, are you seriously kidding? Are you kidding me right now? So when the pledge launched, you know, and we put it out there, we created, here's what we want to see you take, here's the action, here are tactics for per action, 
And here's the outcome. We want to see numbers. We want to see clinical trial sites. And there are 20 cities in this country that have the highest rate of breast cancer mortality for Black women. There should be clinical trials in each of those cities. There should be financial support to get patients, you know, when they leave their jobs or going to trials, being off of work, paying for drugs if they have to be at home. I mean, there should be all these things have been done. Billions of dollars being spent right, in right. studying and studying and research and thinking and talking. Cut that shit out. Like, exactly. I'm sick of it. Yeah. And so Remove I said the barriers people, that make it happen. Exactly. Mm-hmm. We know the barriers. So I don't want to talk about it anymore. I keep hearing. I don't right. want to talk about it. Here's what you can do. And if you don't do these things, I'm going to call you out. And it's not in a mean way. It's to say that you have the money to put, if each of them put two clinical trial sites into in one city, they can do that. Or if even corporations like big companies, like there's Ford or all these companies, like let's say Dove or whatever you product to use, Water Deer Park, I don't know. There's all these companies that have products, Walmart. If they put their collective corporate power and money behind health equity, we could change a lot of people of color dying the most of breast cancer. So we put it on the table and we said, you say you don't know what to do. Here's what you can do. Here's how you can do it. And we're going to measure you on this. So take the pledge or we're going to find you and we're going to make sure that you are called out. And so, but also their partners who've been partnering with us for a long time and trying to move things. But within each company, there's bureaucracy. So let's say one of our partners in pharma wants to put sites in an area that's underserved. Maybe her upper echelon says, you know, there's all these layers to getting that approved. And so for us, it's like saying, put the pressure on the powers that be because it's all about money. It's all about money and make it happen. And so what's been really powerful is that as painful as it's been to see what's happened around the most challenging these racial issues in the past couple weeks and months, it's brought to light what people haven't talked about for many years. You have never seen things visually as you have had in the past month. And they now can see the pain Black people face. One of the major barriers is barriers of trust. But beyond trust, there has been, it's kind of like people have been, to be, I'll be very, very vocal, people have been raped, they've been beaten, they've been lynched, they've been disenfranchised. That trauma is so very real. Unless you address the trauma and build trust, you will never have equity. And so you can discuss all these different things and mechanisms, but you have to show that I care about you. I care about your life. I love you as a human being. Because I love you, I will take these steps, regardless of money or barriers. And so when I hear the word barriers, I get very angry because those are not barriers. Because we have money to overcome them. It's just that people have not been invested enough to make those things happen fast. They're happening now. We have two partners in pharma that are working to put sites in clinical trials. Some already have in less than a month or two. And so these things can be changed. And when you look at Black communities that are poor. On the corners, every corner has a chicken place and a fast food place and liquor store. In the higher-end communities, there's Whole Foods, there's farmer's markets. Why can't these companies invest in putting these type of healthier foods in stores that sell healthier foods at lower prices? It's about money. Right, right. So we're trying to move that needle towards a better, a place of better equity. Yeah, well, that's a, it's truly amazing. And I think that it will, and it sounds like it already is, if you have already in the last four months, two clinical trials in these communities that you're talking about. The other thing that is interesting about clinical trials that I'm becoming more and more aware of is we need to be able to decentralize clinical trials so that the trials can actually come closer to the people who are on them as opposed to having to travel great distances to certain centers when when they have affiliate centers that can absolutely do the same thing. It just requires, guess what? 
resources money. and money, right? It always comes down to that, as you said. We're also training going into HBCUs and getting young men and women who want to go into medicine or who are in yes. biology and classes and saying, having black doctors go and say, by the way, young woman, young man, you want to go into this work. Here's what you can do. And here's how you can impact people of color because people don't see black doctors in these places. Yes, exactly. So that is another barrier to trusting and engagement and adherence. Right. So, so are you hoping that the inclusion pledge will also move to academic institutions as well? That's part of the pledge. Part it's, of it, it's, yeah. a whole, it's a whole thing. We have a whole page and we're still adding on to it. So there's, if you want to change things, you have to address every system and every sector. Right. So from healthcare providers to going into HBCUs to, I read something that was really powerful. There's a man, I forget his name. He's been meeting with people, members of the Ku Klux Klan, like meeting them over the past however many years, having conversations about race. And he's converted many people to becoming more humanistic humans who hated Black people, who didn't understand. So I think that the pledge for me isn't just about healthcare. It's about systemic racism that affects us in every single way in our country, in our world. And so whether it's, you know, my daughter and her boyfriend going to walk peacefully twice and saying that our lives matter, whether it's a teacher telling her student who feels that he's the only Black kid in the class or one of the only Black kids in the class, raise your hand more. How can I include you in more conversations that would make you feel more powerful? Right. Whether it's, you know, so it literally it's about everybody taking that sense of knowing that how to use your privilege for power and how to take that step to include others who are not at the table. That's well, how we're going to change and move towards health equity. I agree a hundred percent. I think a, a many of our listeners will have maybe already signed on to the pledge, but for those <laughs> that have not yet done so, how do they do that? They can go onto our website and gosh, the link is pretty long, but if you Google tiger lily foundation.org yes. and it's T I G E R L I L Y foundation.org. And then just put a comma inclusion pledge. It'll pop right up. And it tells you the page is very explicit about talking through what the pledge, the history of the pledge with Jersey and Julian yes. Christine, and then the pledge in San Antonio and what the pledge means. We have statistics on black women and how they're disproportionately affected by breast cancer because of their color and lack of diversity in clinical trials. Let me go into the pledge and then it's broken out by sector and what you can do in your way to make a difference by taking your own inclusion pledge. Excellent. And we have that link in our episode notes. So we'll be able, everyone can find it there. So it'll be a direct link on the episode notes. So moving to I love the way you approach this, Mema, because it is a holistic solution or a holistic call to action for everyone that touches a breast cancer or metastatic breast cancer patient, and that's entire society. And so I think as a metastatic breast cancer patient myself, and I've taken the pledge, but I think it's just, I love the comprehensive nature of it because I do think that it's almost like whack-a-mole. We have so many issues that we need to be addressing right now, and I think that this is a real tangible way to do so. So I encourage every one of our listeners to check it out and to sign up and to encourage their institutions, their oncologists, their and companies they're involved in to also take the pledge because people, this is a really important initiative. It's about compassion. It's exactly, it's a long time overdue and thank you for all your leadership with it. Just a quick note, Mema, in our interview here, just mentioned two amazing women, Julia Moss and Christine Hodgson. 
these women are leading advocates in the NBC community. They were very instrumental in the creation of the Inclusion Pledge with Jersey and with MEMA and others. We look forward to speaking with Christine in August when we explore issues around brain mets and for a conversation with both Christine and Julia in September to highlight their work with the GRASP initiative and much, much more. Now, back to our interview with Mema Karma. I want to talk about advocacy and allyship and all of that stuff that you've also been doing. And I was explaining that I'm an NBC patient myself, but I was de novo. And so a lot of my family members were terrified. That was a big shock to our family. So whenever I discuss my stage four diagnosis, some of them get a little scared. And so it's been heartening to see the work you've been doing as an early stage breast cancer survivor yourself. And you're not someone who's easily scared. I mean, you've survived not one, but two lightning strikes, which is just crazy. Immigration. Well, three wars. And three wars, right? Three wars, lightning strikes and and being held at gunpoint in Liberia as a child. Right. So you're not easily scared, but also you had breast cancer at 32 when your daughter was only three. And so you've had multiple traumas in your life. So I know you have an opinion on what it means to be a true ally to the metastatic breast cancer community. And I thought you could talk to us a little bit about that. I appreciate that. This is a very sensitive subject because I, I know we all feel deeply, but I think people don't realize how somebody's impacted unless the person's close to them or they're not touched by it till, until it's in their face. You know, I think because of my childhood traumas and having to go through people, seeing people die and going through that. And I'm also an empath. I love deeply. And so when I see you, I don't see you as any color. I see you as a friend and I see your heart and your soul. Getting diagnosed early stage for me was like, oh my God, it's early stage. And I was terrified of maybe the, you know, what would happen if the cancer spread or I didn't understand what cancer was. And I think my doctor never talked to me about METS or MBC, you know, just he's never discussed what MPC was and becoming metastatic. He just, all I, all I wanted to know at the time, to be honest, was that I would survive breast cancer. So I was in the world very much like many other women who were early stagers, happy I wasn't metastatic and that was that. Mm-hmm. And as I began my advocacy work, I began to make friends. And one friend I made was a woman, a girl named Kristen Martinez. And she was light. She was love. She was energy. She was fire. She was all these amazing things. And she was metastatic. At the time, I was naive, naive enough to think that, well, you're meta- you are, but you can be cured. You'll be fine. And because she would always have something pop up and get radiation or she'd get on a clinical trial. And I had no understanding of the death of what her diagnosis meant that it meant that she would someday die of cancer. Mm-hmm. And so my early advocacy years were going to conferences, going to whatever I could get my hands on to learn. And she was with me. It was myself and her, Jenna Glazer and Stephanie LaRue. There were four of us, like always together, always going and learning and talking. And then one day Jenna reached out to me and said, Kristen's not doing well, you have to come. And it was one of the most, like, I remember where I was when she called me. And literally my beautiful friend was laying in a bed and she had lost so much weight and she could barely speak. And Jenna told me, be prepared for what you're going to see because, you know, you don't understand until you see it that people read about people passing away and they say, she joined the angels. That pisses me off. Nobody wants to die of this disease. And I walked in there and I saw my friend barely able to talk and just so weak. And over the next week or two or three, I watched her life slip away. I sat with her at night, holding her hand, watching her cry. I watched her struggle to breathe. I looked into her eyes and saw her pain. And I'm like, this is not supposed to be happening. And 
after she passed, I gave her eulogy and I just did not want to see anything about meds and people. I just didn't want to think about it. I was in so much pain, but I promised her because all that separated us was a couple of months. The reason why I'm here is because my mom taught me at an early age about my body and to keep asking, keep pushing and keep making lifestyle changes and don't take no for an answer. And Kristen had been told she was too young and there she was dying of breast cancer. So if she'd known certain things earlier, perhaps, or done certain things earlier enough, it's never anybody's fault, but it's just kind of, if you have the tools and the education, the resources, you can have a better outcome. You could have a better outcome. So after years of pushing out of the med space, I woke up one morning and I thought, I need to do this for her because we're all the same. Every, it's every stage is on the same playing field. All that separates us is time. And all that can change someone's life is time if they're educated or have the right resources or treatment earlier. Mm-hmm. And so we launched our METS program and called it My Life because, mm-hmm. you know, Kristen lived an amazing life. She lived more life in five years than people live in 60 or 80 years. And so we wanted to empower the woman who we knew and loved who were metastatic to know that to live their best life, to live and love and use that power for purpose and advocacy while they're alive. Some live six months, some live six years, some live 10, 20 years. So being metastatic isn't a death sentence. It's something that could become some point chronic, but how do we empower you to live your life and have tools and have a voice and not be the elephant in the room? Because I felt very often that within the breast cancer space, there is that pink washing where even myself, you know, I'm always asked to speak on panels and put in front of people as a hero and being the fearless warrior. And I'm like, no, that girl right there that is in the back, she's the one that's fearless. She's living her life being told that there's a thing in her body that's trying to grow fast and kill her. And she's out here advocating and empowering other people. She is a warrior. Not, don't look at me. So the goal is to create a level playing field for my patients and sisters who are metastatic and bring them alongside me where there wasn't a separation from early stagers and the meds community. And so I worked really hard to bridge that gap. My friend Beth Caldwell, who died two and a half years ago, she and I had an amazing meeting by chance at the airport after (laughs) SABCS one year. Great meetings meetings at airports. (laughs) Yeah, at the bar, of course. But we met and, you know, she really helped me. I said, Beth, you know, there's, because she's with MetUp. She was angry about being metastatic and angry about people not hearing her. And they had a protest, I think, or a die-in and were kicked out of the one of the meeting rooms. She was mad at not being heard. And I said, can we talk about how you feel? I want to know how you feel and why you think the anger is going to help you, you know, promote this message. And then I said, I get the anger. I've been there. I watched somebody I love go through this and many other women that I've not been close to, but I want to know what you're thinking and feeling and how can we work together as sisters so I can support you so that your voice is heard and that the women that are early stages don't think that they're exempt and forget to be vigilant and they lose their lives. And so we kind of made this promise to work together and bring the Mets community and the women who are early stages together. And we began to work together and she really helped me to bring that voice of both ends together, both of us. And Beth passed away two years ago, but we did so much work in just a short period of time together. She was amazing. She, she was. An amazing leader, yeah. The thing I, I think is really important is finding allies, people that see your perspectives, that people that you want to see who are not like you. I mean, to look at Beth and look in her eyes and having her tell me, I'm not going to be here in two years. That's a very powerful statement to make in a, a place to be that's very scary. And I'm so proud of her for using her time in a way that has changed so many people's lives. And so 
whenever I lose somebody or whenever I connect with somebody and I love them, their fight becomes my fight. And so people often ask me, are you metastatic? And I'm like, no, but why should I be to care about you or about her? Right. That's how I view my world. Right. Well, thank you. And thank you for mentioning Beth Caldwell and highlighting her incredible legacy. It's really important for us all not to forget the great work that she did and, and others as well. So um, I came before us that empowered exactly. us to do what we're doing. Yeah, it's so true. So the hashtag listen up NBC initiative, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think some of our listeners will want to know also about that initiative and how they could perhaps participate. Listen Up NBC has really become our mantra about the importance of listening to other people's voices and hearing different perspectives around metastatic breast cancer and around women of color and how they're facing disparities. It's really important to listen to people. I think we oftentimes talk too much, don't listen enough. And to be able to be able to see somebody, really see somebody and connect with them, you have to close your mouth and open your ears and open your heart. And so we began having listening summits. We had the first one in March of 2019 to really hear women of color and hear about the experience of being metastatic and what that means and what it feels like. And then we took the hashtag to use that as an empowerment tool to elevate the power of the women's voices, women's voices and men who are, who are also, we also have NBC. And so the, it began with the listening summit. We went into San Antonio Breast with that same hashtag. And it's like, listen to us, hear us. We are NBC. And we've been hosting Twitter chats, webinars. Our Twitter chats on the average are about 5.5 million impressions per Twitter chat. Our webinars are getting a lot of play. And listen up to me as our rally cry to listen up to NBC and to know that people who are metastatic deserve to have more attention, more funding. They have to be seen more. Their needs are more urgent and more pressing. And how do we work together to hear these challenges and collaborate to end NBC and disparities in our lifetime. And so that listeners can just Google hashtag listen up NBC or go, go to Tiger Lily Foundation and also find it there as well. They can. Yes. Okay. So two different ways to go about it. They can Google it or they can go to the site and find it. They can find us on Google or on social media. If you go to Facebook or or Twitter or on, on Instagram and put in listen up NBC, listen up NBC, you'll see all the conversations going on. And you can put about your own story, whether you've lost someone to NBC, whether you are living with Mets, whether you don't understand it. We really have to address disparities of all kinds, again, whether it's of age, stage, or color. And the hashtag really is about listening to other people, sharing stories, and empowering them to collaborate, amplify their voices, and to use our knowledge as power in our passion, in our purpose, and our pain for power. So if I can, the, uh, maybe I, I hope I have this right, that you have the hashtag inclusion pledge, which is really to get everybody taking action individually on a corporate societal level change, action as a result of signing up to the inclu- hashtag inclusion pledge. And then hashtag right. listen up NBC is a way, a forum for us to talk about it to talk about what we're doing and what is impacting us today and creating community around this whole discussion around metastatic breast cancer. Do I have that right? I want to make sure I'm clear. The, the pledge is a promise to a promise and a pact. Right. Saying we're in this together. We're going to be invested together and we're accountable together. Right. And the hashtags of social activation for a conversation to listen, to hear and amplify around uh, NBC. Awesome. Thank you so much for that explanation. We've been talking a lot about this and, and you've been so clear and highlighting all the issues that we're facing right now. But 
mental health during this time of a pandemic that's not abating and then much needed reckoning in America for racial justice. And then there's economic turmoil. And then not to mention those of us with breast cancer and metastatic breast cancer, you know, our ongoing treatments and health concerns. It's a lot right? It's a lot right now for everyone, but you write and talk so openly around the traumas that have happened in your life. And you are so open about that. And it's so helpful. But can you tell us how you're maintaining your physical and mental well-being during this time? Because it's not easy. So what self-care tips can you share with all of us? So I'll be honest, which is what I I am. I did a lot of self-care before. I would run in the morning, I'd meditate, I'd pray. I think, though, several things happened around COVID. As COVID was approaching, I have two best friends, and one was dying of metastatic cervical cancer. So I didn't see COVID at first. My goal was to get her off that ledge. You know, I saw her slipping out of my, through my fingers, and I was just focusing on COVID. So that anxiety was so high around keeping her here and the fear of not having her. And so I cried a lot. My tools, when you're under anxiety and pressure, your tools kind of become you forget because you can't breathe, you know, you can't think straight. So going into that, that was hard. And then COVID hit and being a breast cancer survivor and having asthma, which is why I cough sometimes, I have asthma, asthmatic days. You think about how it's going to affect you and the whole world in this state of turmoil, everybody, not just breast cancer patients, whether you're early stage metastatic, then there's issues with the racial injustices. It was all so much. So I got to a point where I just could not breathe. I was grieving deeply for Kat's the loss of her, saying goodbye to her over FaceTime. Heaven still not buried her because she we can't do that right now. A lot of my friends who are metastatic are progressing. I can't go be with them. We all can't go to the grocery store or go out or just spend time or just touch or hug or feel each other's bodies and just connect that way. So my self-care routine has become even more important. To me, it's the most important thing I do every day. I um, get up in the morning. And I feel my body, I just kind of tap in and see how I feel, where there's stress, where there's tension. Can I breathe? Am I breathing in my chest or my stomach? So I do that. I have essential oils that I use that I put on my skin. I I smell. I use my Calm app and Insight Timer. I write. I give myself permission to cry. I wake up often in the mornings where I'm just crying. As an empathic person that feels everything, that's experiencing my own losses, And even as a person of color, a black woman, I've experienced a lot of different injustices racially that I never talk about, that I never would tell people, I didn't talk about before this, that have come back, the trauma has come back to me. And so there are all these things. So my self-care is so important. And my recent book, Unicorn Boss, came out of my journal, actually, because I wrote about going through trauma, having a child that has chronic health illness that no one knew about. So dealing with that, cat getting sick. COVID happening and all that popped up around this time with the racial inequities was for me so traumatic. And so the morning time for me, I get up in the morning around 6.30, but I don't get out of bed till around 8. I literally just lay there and let my body breathe. You know, I honor my, my life. If I honor my heart, I honor my feelings, give myself permission to feel how I feel. Whether it's crying, there's could be like tears just running down my face, or it could be where I'm just sobbing in a ball or where I can't move. And that's okay. It's okay to feel these feelings. And then I just honor myself and send myself lots of love. I pray, I read, I write. I take in time to create a space in my house that's sacred where I can go into that space and just sit there and play music and honor my life. And I've bought sound bowls and I have cards and journals and things. But it's really important to like 
feel how you feel, but have a space to move you out into a place that's actionable. And so the first part of my morning is kind of tapping in, releasing and honoring. And the other part of me is like saying, the next part is honor your body by hearing, honor your senses, honor your heart, honor your life. And so I put my intentions on creating my a day that's intentional where I can make a difference that day. So whatever happens, I honor myself. And there are some days where I don't want to have a meeting. I don't want to talk. I just want to be with my feelings and I'll cancel meetings and honor myself. I think the most important thing is honoring yourself right now. And that's what I do. It is where I go really, really hard, where I'll have like 10 meetings a day, back to back to back to back. And I had one meeting last week or a day last week where I was like in that intense, you know, just pushing forward. And I looked up at the sun coming in the windows. It was so beautiful. And I wanted to, I wanted to call Kat and pick up my phone to call her and I couldn't. And then I'm like, it hit me. I started crying. And then I thought about George Floyd and all the other people that had been going through pain and I literally couldn't talk to anybody. I just wanted to cry. And one of my friends said, I felt you should send me a text saying, I feel you, are you okay? And I said, I'm, in a, I'm just feeling my feelings. And she said, can I come over? I said, no, I need to just feel these feelings. And I sat outside and I cried and looked at the beautiful sun in the sky and the clouds. And I said, I'm, I'm still alive and I can still cry. And so balancing those dualities is like really powerful. I think being able to be in a place where you can feel your feelings and whatever they are and honor life. And then be there and don't judge yourself and don't label it as wrong or right. And get your strength back and then go back into the world and be a boss. And sometimes being a boss is being authentic and crying and letting yourself process your trauma. So those are my tools is being real, being authentic, is giving myself, I have an extensive self-care routine, take baths and I do tapping. I've learned EFT using sound bowls. So I have a whole book on self-care and how there are tools you can learn to be tap the F in. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, but yeah, it's just really about the love. I think as an advocate, we give other people so much love. And for me, it's been giving myself the love I give to all these people, all my yes. friends and family members. It's giving myself that love, acceptance, trust, and honor. And honoring yourself. I love that you say that you will sometimes just bow out of whatever you need to do that day because you're honoring yourself. And I think that as advocates, that's really important. Because there's so many demands on you, Mayma, all the time. And so I think that's just a really good lesson for anybody to learn at any stage or phase in life, whether you have a chronic disease or whether you have something that is stage four metastatic breast cancer or if you don't. It's a good lesson to teach our children. It's like, don't forget to live. You know, yeah, exactly your, right. Yeah, prioritize like, yourself I, first in a way. Yeah. So you can give to others. Put your oxygen mask on first. And then you take care of the kids and, and, the laundry. Take, and the laundry and everything else you do or, yeah, it's really important. Yeah. So. If you read, I think it's Glennon Doyle. She's written mm. several books. I love. Love she Glennon about, Doyle. She, talk, she saw, she said she'll be on a thing on a podcast and just start crying. <laughs> talks about her depression, her anxiety. She talks about letting herself just be. I think the entire world's in a place of just being told to stop and just be. And I think that's so powerful when you can just be where you are and that's okay with no labeling, no judgment. And then when you process that, you get back to living your best life. Exactly. But your best life could be... Just feeling those feelings and feeling those hard feelings and being okay with it. And I think that there does seem to be a shift now. Uh, I think you're tapping right into it, that there's a shift in how we talk about our emotions and that we can be open about mental health and about struggles with mental health. And I think those of us... Yeah, go ahead. many, Many patients I've talked to, you know, like we have a series called Have the Chat, 
And it's about having honest conversation. One of my friends who's a survivor, three times survivor, talked about feeling suicidal as she was metastatic. My friend Kelly Parker did a video recently where she talked about she had to be put in a treatment facility. And I really honor those women for saying that, for talking about what they went through, because I think the idea of this fearless warrior has been so propagated throughout this cancer community as women. And sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you get depressed. My friend Anne-Marie, she works with Wisdom and she does other things. I think it's super dumb, breast cancer rather. She talks about depression and anxiety and trauma and how as a survivor, she's dealt with that. And I have other friends who are clinicians who lose patients all the time and they get depressed. They're in support groups. So it's really important to realize that your strongest friends are the one who need the most help because they're the ones carrying people and putting themselves aside and worrying on. Mm -hmm. And it's a lot, but it's, it's something we choose to do. I love what I do. I could not do anything else besides this is why I signed up to be in this lifetime. And it's wonderful. It's painful. It's hard. It's heartbreaking. It's joyful. It's euphoric. It's amazing. It's like this roller coaster ride that we are here for. <laughs> Right, but I, I think you have a wonderful quote that I think you need to tell everybody. Service oh, yes. being, yeah, you have to tell us that one. It's a really I good, love, it really sums up what I, you're I, trying to say. Yeah, so my favorite, I love this quote, is by Miriam Wright Edelman. And it says, service is the rent you pay for a living. Even whenever I say it, I start, I get emotional. I mean, we're in this life one time. You know, right. we're here as Mema and you're here as Lisa one time. We get to live. For some reason, we get to have more time. And I look at my sister, Kat, who's, you know, not physically here right now. My friend, Kristen, my other friends who are metastatic patients, they're living that living legacy of because you are alive, you serve. That's the rent you pay for a living. And that's how I live my life. You know, when people say you go too hard or do you ever sleep or stop or I don't know how you do it. I think about I'm here. I get to be here. My daughter, she's 17. When I was diagnosed, she was three years old. I get to be here. I get to see her. She learned to read and to write and to ride a bike and to cry. And she cry about boys and sort of things and laugh about boys. And she's learning her own power in her life. And she can do my makeup and we can go out to dinner and talk about stuff. And, you know, I get to be here and I can't take that for granted because I have this time. My rent is my time, my life and my service to others. Absolutely. Well, thank you for that. And I have one final question and, and it's really related to being true to your voice, true, as well as how to advocate and stand up for yourself. And I think so many of us in the metastatic breast cancer world, but also in the breast cancer early stage world, where you're just blindsided with the diagnosis at, at any stage, right? It's a really staggering thing. But can you give any of your pro tips? Because you really advocated for yourself when you were first diagnosed. And so that was 14 years ago, and some things have changed, but a lot of it hasn't. A lot of it hasn't where patients and women are dismissed and not listened to, and then they wait and then further things happen to their health because they weren't really truly listened to. So I know this is something that you've spoken a lot in your first book, certainly, and a lot of your advocacy is around how to actually speak up for yourself. But can you tell us a little bit about what would be your top three things to remember when you're going into your doctor's office? I would say your doctor should be, he works for you. Not the other he, way around. He or she. He or she, he or she, right? he or she works for you. You're right. Thanks for the reminder. <laughs> he or she works for you. And so you have to always go into your doctor's office empowered. You can never assume they know more than you do. And so one of the things that you have to do is learn all you can learn about your health diagnosis and the options. And so when you go to her office, 
and ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be, be afraid to say, why not this? The most empowered advocates go into doctor's offices. They know their options. They've learned their options. And that's why we built a Tiger Lily. Uh, our goal is to give patients toolkits to go in there with arms, with power and education. So go in with a list of questions, understand clinical trials, understand genetic testing, and why your genes and health history and family history are important. So when you go into a doctor's office armed, whether it's a he or she, or both, <laughs> you or go they, in there, yep. mm-hmm. or they, you go in there knowing what your outcomes could be if you don't, if you choose either treatment plan. So go in, get, be educated, be your best advocate, be empowered, and also think about legacy. I always think beyond myself. When I got diagnosed, I didn't know I would be building this organization. I would be national and global right now. I didn't know what we'd be doing, running all these programs. I didn't know I'd be hosting an inclusion pledge. I just would close my eyes when I lay in bed and imagine a world that would be different. And as I grew in my strength and I knew that my voice mattered, that if I used my voice, one more person could live. One more person could have access. So every time I spoke, I knew that I could touch one person or 10,000 people. And that would be carried forward like a butterfly effect. And that's why I moved me forward. And I promised to God that if I lived, I would give my life in service to other people. And so think about being your best advocate, being empowered, using your voice. But how do you use your voice beyond more than just yourself? I would close my eyes and imagine a world where there was women had access and tools and resources and where people didn't die of cancer. And so I knew that I wanted to spend my time moving towards that path. And there were many barriers. I mean, being a young Black woman that didn't have money or wasn't in the club, you know, people didn't know me in the breast cancer space. I was ostracized at many times. I was asked many times, why are you here? I was asked at conferences, are you a doctor? And I'm like, no, I just want to know. And I often was in rooms where no one looked like me, but I could not give up. I knew where I was going. I knew what I wanted to accomplish before I left this planet. And I was going to, and I am going to get there and bring others with me. And so I would say be educated, know the facts, be empowered, speak up and build a legacy. That's what you do. Thank you so much, Mema, for everything you're doing. And thank you for all of your great pearls of wisdom today and the action that you call us to. Yeah, you have, I have one last yeah. thing. Oh, yeah, please. Yes. I would say lead with love. Ah, yes. Because oftentimes in the breast cancer space, it can be very, very contentious in any space and with what's happening in the world. So I always tell my, my daughter and her friends and myself to lead with love and put love first. And when you lead with love and you put yourself in the other person's shoes, even when someone can see how you look at them, whether it's in person or through video, it breaks down so many barriers when you say, I see you. And that comes from love. So if you can utilize love and compassion and really see people, you don't have to even talk sometimes. You can just see people and you just can connect with them. So, so right on and so beautiful. And thank you for sharing that last last piece. That's beautiful. Wow, you're amazing, Mema. Thank you so much for joining us from the bottom of my heart. It's been such an honor. And I hope you'll come back to our podcast again because we're always here. You have a new a new initiative. You want to talk about it? You just come right on back because we will let everybody know. And oh, thank it, you. It's just been our pleasure. And we of course have all the links to your personal website, the Tiger Lily Foundation. Hashtag listen up NBC, hashtag inclusion pledge. It's all there in our episode notes. So thank you so much again, Mema. I just have loved our conversation, our talk today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it and I honor you. Thank you so much. Thank you. As we close out our first podcast, a word about share cancer support. 
SHARE's mission is to serve and support medically underserved communities. It is in line with this mission to advocate and amplify stories and voices, as you heard today. This is Christine, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at SHARE, and I'm also the Vice Chair of the Metastatic Breast Cancer Alliance. SHARE recently signed the Inclusion Pledge, originated by the Tiger Lily Foundation, and since then, we've named our first Chief Diversity Officer, Ivis Sampaio. Ivis will manage our internal and external efforts to work more diligently in reducing health inequities. Ivis has worked in this area for nearly three decades and brings so much knowledge, dedication, and passion to the mission. We look forward to telling you more about our inclusion pledge in the months to come. This podcast was produced by me, Lisa Laudico, along with our collaborative podcast team of Jersey Baker, Victoria Goldberg, Regina Matthews, Sheila McGlone, Rainey Ortica, Shante Randall, Emily Veach, and Anne Woodward. Our executive producer is Christine Benjamin, the Senior Director of Patient Services and Education at SHARE. Interning with us are Angelica Alberstadt, Elena Golub, and Amy Tedeschi. Special thanks to Beth Costello and Rainey Ortica, who designed our logo, and to the team at SHARE, Carol Evans, Jill Golden, and Amanda Russell for their support. You can find more episodes of RMBC Life wherever you find your podcasts. Be sure to subscribe and look for a new pod every Monday. Monday.